Carolyn, my wife, uh, got me a um, set of CDs from the library recently that are uh, essays by C.S. Lewis. It's kind of a big collection that has almost every, seemingly almost every essay that he wrote that was never in a, in a bigger sort of book. And so there's lots of themes that come up over and over again. And one of the themes that uh, has really struck me is an essay uh, from a collection called The World's Last Night, which is quoting a John Donne poem that asks, what if this present were the world's last night? So what if today was the last day uh, on earth? And I was, I was struck by that thought as we were singing um, the Come Lord Jesus Come at the beginning. And I was thinking, uh, well, that's great, you know, Come Lord Jesus, but, but I do have this sermon that I put together, and it would be great if you could just <laughs> hold on for a minute there. And then, <laughs> and then I realized that that's sort of like uh, if, if your colleague asks you directions to your boss's office, and you start telling them the directions, and all of a sudden your boss walks by, and you're like, wait, but I was in the middle of telling you them the directions, and it was really good, my, very clear my directions. Um, so I, I think it's important um, as I'm talking, and I, I know I, I talk very quickly, naturally, and even more whenever I'm up here, that we're colleagues talking about directions to the boss's office, and if I'm talking too quickly, if you could just raise your hand or kind of gesture towards me to say, slow down. Okay, <laughs> slow down. Yeah, excellent. Good. I'll try to keep my, uh, my eyes out. Um, so when I was a graduate student in Lexington, Kentucky, I went to the University of Kentucky, and this was before Marilyn and I were married, I attended a mega church uh, for a few months. It was one of those, uh, those churches that call their property a campus. They have a neighborhood of small buildings and several sports fields and a food court with multiple church-owned restaurants that people can go to after the service and, uh, and police that direct people out of the parking lots after, after service. Um, the service regu regularly featured skits um, that had fairly uh, professional costumes and lighting effects. And one Sunday, the sermon was one of the stories where, Jesus washes, where uh, a woman washes Jesus' feet. Uh, much like the story that we are talking about today. Now, if you don't know, this story actually is told in all four of the Gospels. In fact, in John, there's a promise that Jesus gives that as often as the story of Jesus is told, this story will be told along with it. Um, but they're sort of different in each of the accounts. But, and I think that this particular skit was the story from John where Judas is actually the one that condemns the, the woman, not the Pharisee. Um, but the scene was actually performed kind of in pantomime over a song. There was a singer singing a, uh, a contemporary Christian song. And the, uh, Jesus was um, seated at a very uh, kind of modern table. He was dressed in the stereotypical Jesus costume with um, a white, long white robe, long, bright, brown, long brown hair, sandals. And he was talking to his, uh, his, presumably his disciples, which looked much the same except they had shorter hair. And a, uh, a woman entered from the back and knelt before Jesus and began to massage his feet with oil. And he looked down, surprised for a moment, the actor, and then reacted with gratitude and pleasure. And the song went on for a long time, and she kept massaging, and he kept on reacting, and several thousand conservative Christians shifted uncomfortably in their seats. Um, this is a well-known passage uh, that we're looking at today, and it's easy to reduce the, uh, the characters to sort of the flannel graphs that we used to have when I was in vacation Bible school or the colored pencil drawings and the, the weekly readers for, for church, for Sunday school. Um, and so because we know the passage so well, we, we kind of step away from the Pharisee the minute he enters the scene because we know that he's going to get in trouble by the end. And, and we want to stand kind of near the woman because Jesus praises her. Um, but when the scene is embodied in a performance, in a, in a skit, uh, the uncomfortable eroticism of this passage becomes a little shocking, and we might want to sort of step away from the woman as well, as I, as I sort of felt as I was watching the skit at, at Southland Christian Church. Um, 
my, uh, my first mental defense against this shock when I'm reading the passage is to attempt to contextualize this foot washing in terms of the culture. But this only kind of helps a little. In the ancient world, uh, foot washing by servants of both genders was indeed common. In Homer's poem, The Odyssey, when the hero Ulysses, the wandering warrior, comes back home to the home of his wife, who's being um, sort of pursued by lots of suitors who think that Ulysses is dead, uh, Penelope doesn't actually recognize Ulysses, her husband. She thinks he's just a beggar. Uh, but she's, uh, she's a kind woman, and she offers to have her young handmaidens wash his feet. And he objects to that, and he says uh, that he won't have the young women touch his feet. But he proposes that if there's an older woman in the household who has borne such troubles as I, uh, that that would be acceptable. And so an older woman is brought in who's about a generation older, and we later learn that she held uh, Ulysses in her arms the moment that he was born. So but this, this story sort of suggests that, in the Greek world at least, um, a woman washing the feet of a man, even if it wasn't exactly shocking, was still a little bit uncomfortable. Ulysses doesn't want the young woman touching his feet, but he's, he's okay if it's an older woman who's about a generation older than he is. And it might have been even more uncomfortable, this sort of cross-gender uh, cross um, foot washing among the Jews. Uh, this is a culture where feet is sometimes used as a euphemism for genitals. Uh, Abigail offers to wash the feet of King David and his servants in 2 Samuel 25, but then he immediately marries her. Um, earlier, David tells Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, who of course he ha uh, commits adultery with, um, he tells Uriah, her husband, to go at home and wash his feet, which in that instance seems to be a euphemism for going to sleep with his wife to try to cover up the fact that she's gotten pregnant, pregnant with the king. Um, and so there's, there's this sort of already this uh, kind of uncomfortable eroticism attached to uh, the idea of feet as a, as a metaphor uh, in the Jewish context. Um, but uh, the closest uh, euphemism for foot washing, uh, or the, at least the, the situation here today, might be uh, something like a professional massage. In the right context, it's, a, it's, a, it's acceptable and even non-sexualized, even if the masseuse is young and of the opposite gender. But as endless sitcoms and movie scenes demonstrate, it can still be a little bit strange, and there still is a sort of discomfort about it. And this scene is made even weirder by the fact that the woman lets down her hair. Uh, Dick sent me an article from the Journal of Bible Literature last week that notes that a woman letting down her hair could, in some contexts, be an act of sexual provocation. But it could also be an act of extreme uh, devotion, worship, or grieving. And it's almost certainly that in this case, the woman's uh, letting down her hair was intended to be grieving or worship. And it was probably more or less interpreted as that by those present. But it still makes it uncomfortable. So you've got a lot of these things that are sort of just on the edge of okay. Like it's okay because of the context, but it still is a little bit weird. Um, nonetheless, the, the objection that Simon, this, the Pharisee that we heard about earlier, has to all this is not uh, impropriety. He doesn't condemn Jesus for letting a woman touch him um, or touch his feet, but he's concerned about the character of the woman who's doing the touching. She's known in the town as a sinner. It's possible, I suppose, that she was a cheat at the marketplace or perhaps an exploiter of the poor, but many have interpreted her sin as sexual throughout the, uh, the millennia. Whatever the case, her public sin, the fact that her sin is really well known in the town, makes it even more awkward for those who see her touching Jesus' feet. But you get the sense that, that Simon is even not really that concerned about that in particular, about the fact that this sinful woman is touching Jesus' feet. You get almost the sense that he's trying to make excuses for Jesus. If you've ever invited a friend over uh, to eat dinner with your family, and you see the friend in, behaving in ways that you think your family might not approve of, or telling stories that you think they might not approve of, 
you might get a little taste of what Simon is going through. Simon's taking a risk here. Remember, he's invited Jesus into his home, and that's a big no-no if, you, uh, if you're a Pharisee seen eating with sinners, but Jesus is often actually accused of eating with sinners. Um, if Jesus is a false prophet, Simon is guilty of uh, doing the same thing that uh, his colleagues, the other Pharisees, actually accused Jesus of doing in just the last passage, eating and drinking um, with sinful people. In John 3, there's another Pharisee, Nicodemus, who generally in the scriptures comes off a lot better than this, this Pharisee, Simon. But even Nicodemus isn't willing to uh, invite Jesus over to his house. He sneaks into Jesus' house late at night when no one can see him. But Simon has thrown a public party for Jesus. The news has spread that Jesus is a person to know. He's healed a centurion servant simply by speaking a word, and he raised a widow's son from the dead. And maybe Simon has his own reasons for believing in Jesus. In the other stories in Matthew and Mark, the character of Simon, who's still called Simon, is not described as Simon the Pharisee, but as Simon the leper. Now, it could be that Luke is describing a different moment. Maybe there's a very similar story with two different Simons. Um, or maybe in his stated attempt to write an orderly account of Jesus' life, Luke is correcting mistakes in other biographies. Or maybe he's making a mistake himself. But if we assume that all three of these stories, these very similar stories, tell different details about the same passage, then it might just be that Simon the Pharisee, Simon was a Pharisee who had contracted leprosy and who was healed by Jesus. We don't have any recorded story about this healing of a Pharisee, but in the passage that immediately precedes this one, in verse 21, Luke tells us just generally, at that time Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. Maybe Simon was among them. But now there's, reason, there's rumors that Jesus doesn't even uh, behave in the way a prophet or even a good man should. He eats and drinks with sinners. He doesn't observe the Sabbath. He doesn't seem to obey the laws about ceremonial washing. And even his closest ally, John the Baptizer, seems to be doubting him. He's just sent messages, messengers to ask Jesus if he's really the one. So this dinner is an investigation. And Simon is attempting to appear very cautious and impartial. He doesn't greet Jesus with a kiss, perhaps thinking that his colleagues would condemn him the same way that some in the press condemned President Obama for shaking hands with Raul Castro at Nelson Mandela's memorial service. He doesn't provide Jesus with the usual niceties of a foot bath, which would have been common at the time. This isn't a, a, a very friendly dinner. But, but still, we have to remember that Simon has opened his house and maybe his mind a little bit. But then that woman enters, and the kissing starts. And she lowers her hair. And Simon goes into crisis management mode. OK, so, so this, this lady is touching Jesus' feet, and it's a little weird. It's, it's OK, though. It's not exactly against our law, part of the culture and all that. But, but then it's her. But Jesus is new in town. There's no way that he could know that, except, of course, that he's supposed to be a prophet. Well, that settles that. I guess he's not a prophet after all. I didn't really think so anyway. Mission accomplished. And that's where Jesus breaks in with a story about someone being forgiven a debt that it would take them about 500 days to pay off, and someone who is forgiven, another person who's forgiven a debt who would take about 50 days to pay off. And Jesus asks which one would love the moneylender more. The answer is obvious, of course, and Simon gives it. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, he says. And Jesus responds, you have judged correctly. And I imagine a pause there before correctly, because clearly Simon has judged a lot of things that day. He's judged the woman to be unworthy of touching Jesus because of her sin, especially ironic if Simon had once been an untouchable leper who Jesus had touched and healed. 
uh, he's judged Jesus not to be a prophet because he allowed the touching to happen. And all of these things are in disobedience to the command that Jesus gave in the previous chapter, do not judge or you will too will be judged. And he uses the same word there. Um, but here, Simon at last has judged correctly. And, yes, and it's not judging in the negative sense used today in, uh, in Jesus's, uh, and in Jesus' sermon. Do not judge uh, or keep anyone else from uh, coming to Jesus because you too are a sinner. Um, he's, uh, yeah, he's judging in the right way. And, and certainly that sort of, um, decision, that sort of uh, command not to judge, to, to not look down on someone, seems to be part of the story, that, the, part of the point of the story that Luke is telling. But, but Jesus seems to want to make another point. Jesus' point in this story doesn't seem to be the one that we often get whenever we hear this, this passage read, don't judge or you too will be judged. It, it's something else. Jesus directly connects the one forgiven, the smaller amount, who loves less, with Simon. Um, Jesus says, uh, after he, gives, he tells this parable, uh, he says that uh, Simon didn't offer basic hospitality, but this woman, who presumably has been forgiven much, uh, is displaying an extravagant display of uh, hospitality and love. But then Jesus says something to the woman that seems something like a bad cut in a film or a glitch in the matrix. Your sins have been forgiven. But wait, doesn't she already know that? Isn't that why she's being so loving? The story is that whoever has uh, been forgiven much, who has been forgiven much, loves much. Um, so why is she, uh, and isn't that why she's kissing her, his feet the whole time? Did this orderly account of Luke just jump out of order? Or maybe, maybe she had a past encounter with Jesus as well. Maybe this isn't the first time she's meeting Jesus. In the parallel account of this story in the Gospel of John, the woman anointing Jesus' feet is named Mary. Now, there's lots of Marys in the New Testament, and G John's account differs in a couple of ways from this story, but, uh, and, the, and the anointing stories mentioned in Matthew and Mark. But if we assume that they're all the same, then it seems possible that this, story, that this Mary is, as some traditions have it, Mary Magdalene who's actually mentioned right after this passage in Luke as someone from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. Remember, just before this story, we heard at that time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. So if we take the hypothesis that this is Simon the Pharisee, who was a man cured of leprosy, and Mary Magdalene, out of whom seven demons were cast, the tensions in this story become a bit clearer. In Jesus' time in Israel, all illness, particularly skin disease, might be seen as a kind of divine judgment. Moses' sister was condemned with leprosy whenever she uh, spoke against the, the authorities. Um, but Simon knew that he had lived the pure life of a Pharisee. And he knew that despite his condition, he hadn't acted violently or blasphemed God or done any of the things that the demons might have caused this woman to do. And if no one could touch him, Simon, when he was suffering, then surely this woman, who may or may not have been cured, we don't know yet, uh, it, and who did all those horrible things that everyone in town could see, she surely shouldn't be allowed such intimacy with the true prophet. But if Simon is thinking that, then it's certainly uh, in the back of her mind as well, of the woman's mind as well. She still had a need, even though she'd been healed. And Jesus meets it by confirming uh, for her and for everyone else that her sins have been forgiven. Still, she seems to be grieving. The weeping and letting down of hair suggests that she's still deeply aware of her own sin. And so Jesus reminds her of what she probably already knew in her head, but could not fully grasp. Her sins are forgiven. And then Jesus summarizes what has happened at that banquet. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
And this summary works, even if Simon the Pharisee is not Simon the leper and the woman is not Mary uh, Magdalene. The woman had faith that Jesus had the authority to forgive her sins and would do so, even had already done so, before Jesus speaks any words in this story. Simon, on the other hand, didn't even seem confident that Jesus is a true prophet. And so if we understand him to be the other debtor in Jesus' story, the one who had a 50 denarii debt, um, then he too has forgiven sin, been forgiven sins, but he doesn't seem fully able to realize that forgiveness. How is it true that her faith has saved her if even faithless Simon has also been forgiven his sins? Remember, Jesus doesn't uh, claim that Simon hasn't been forgiven, but he says that the woman's faith has saved her. Simon doesn't have faith, still is forgiven. She has faith and is also forgiven. Now, this is a mystery that I'm not sure anyone could honestly and confidently answer, but I wonder if a story from the Old Testament could provide a helpful analogy. In 2 Kings 7, we read the story about a siege in Samaria where, where God's people are living. And the people of God are surrounded by the armies of Aram, who decide, rather than waging a full-out attack on the city and that sort of street-by-street uh, -street warfare that we see in Iraq and other places, they decide they're going to starve the city into submission. And things get very bad um, to the point that we hear about two mothers who are arguing about uh, which child to eat next. And, and then one day, God confuses the Arameans and causes them to turn on each other and kill, kill all of them. And so the camp is gone. The, the siege camp is gone. And the siege is lifted. But no one in the city knows. And eventually, four lepers um, decide they're going to go anyway. They're going to die anyway. And so they go out into the Arabian camp thinking they can beg their, the, the attacking army for mercy and maybe be given some food. Um, but when they go out there, they, they find out that the Arabian camp is gone and there's food there. And so they run back to the city and tell the king. But the king, suspecting that the Arameans are set, have set a trap, doesn't initially believe them. Now, eventually, everyone is convinced and salvation comes to the city. But for a moment, there's a real possibility that the city could have starved while supplies of unguarded food sat right outside of their gates. And maybe this is what's happening at Simon's banquet. Both the Simon and the woman have been forgiven. But only the woman understands that the forgiveness is there. Simon risks starving at his own banquet because of his lack of faith. And perhaps we get a clue that he lacks faith because he's never been desperate enough to sincerely go in search for, of help. This is, I think, what some Catholic theologians uh, currently believe about redemption, which I think Pope Francis has just said is extended to all uh, regardless of faith. And as distinct from salvation, which is enjoyed only by those who reach out to access the redemption. Often we, or at least I, understand faith is the degree to which we can persuade our rational minds to agree with our holiest fantasies. But sometimes faith is simply a decision to act on that which we already deeply believe, even if our current emotions and immediate reactions to the situation around us suggest these deeply held beliefs are false. C.S. Lewis defines faith along these lines, and he compares it to the willingness of a dog caught in a trap to trust its master, even though the actions of loosening the trap are, are painful. So, so faith, in this case, is, is choosing to be almost like faithful. You already believe but you're expressing your faith by saying, even though it hurts right now and I don't quite understand why this is uh, true or that it doesn't actually seem true in this exact moment right now, I most deeply believe, my most uh, deeply held beliefs are that it is true, that, that forgiveness is there, that your master can free you from the trap. And both the woman and Simon enter the, enter the scene with a challenge, this sort of trap-like challenge to their faith. Both seem to suspect that Jesus might be really great maybe even the promised Messiah. But the, the immediate reality of their situations tempts them to doubt. The woman still feels overpowering grief at her sin. 
and Simon's still, uh, Simon's still emerging faith is threatened to be stifled by what he sees happening between the woman and Jesus. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation, perhaps the reason why Jesus told John's disciples earlier in the chapter, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As Dick described in his sermon last week, when our faith is in a platonic ideal, a, a form without flesh, that sort of thing that's out there and, and perfect but undefined, um, we can picture God, forgiveness, holiness, however we like. It's a danger that we experience even as we read this text. It's easy to imagine the foot washing as an act of pure devotion by a grateful disciple that without a trace of eroticism. And it's easy to imagine Simon as the deluded self-righteous villain like Jafar in Aladdin or something in a melodrama who kind of looks on scowling. Um, Jesus, in, in our Platonic view, can take whatever form we like, and he can look actually a lot like us. Um, but uh, in the incarnation, both of Jesus in his first century bodily form and of his Holy, Holy Spirit in, uh, indwelling our form, our carnal form, uh, we, we have to take these mythic ideals, these platonic forms, and make them specific. And disturbingly, they become part of our normal every day. A line in a play can have many possible readings when it's only on the page. But when it's performed, one reading, when it's incarnated or performed, one reading must be chosen. And that reading may shock and disappoint some who imagined something else. Most of us have probably had the experience of being vaguely disappointed by a scene in a even a faithful movie adaptation of a book that was somehow different than we imagined it. The incarnation focuses the fuzzy personal fantasies of our faith and takes them outside of us, outside of our mind, and puts them in our daily experience. And that can be a faith-rattling experience. So what should we learn from this? I think it probably depends on whether right now, at this moment, you identify most with Simon or with the woman. And of course, I think we both we identify with both of them at different times in our lives. However, if today at this moment, regardless of what you felt like yesterday or early, earlier this morning, you feel like the woman, deeply aware of your sin, humiliated by how public it is and how it has tarnished your reputation, then I think we can find here a reminder that God's grace is infinitely deeper and wider than our own shame, and that we have, in fact, already been forgiven by the limitless mercy of God. And I, I know I've heard that said enough that when I, feel deep, when I deeply feel shame, I think the promise of forgiveness, this promise that I just said, it actually refers to some other kind of situation, to less sinful people who haven't sinned so often and so deliberately and at the time so shamelessly. But that's, I think, where the reality of sin, the incarnation of sin, is different from our ideal notion of the repentant sinner. Sin is bad. It hurts us and it hurts others. And that's exactly why it costs so much uh, for Jesus to make it right. And I think that our response should include a kind of godly sorrow, which I suspect was felt by the woman as well. We shouldn't, as Paul writes in Romans, continue to sin so that this grace may increase. But I do think we should also respond with appropriate gratitude to God for his already given forgiveness. For in doing so, we, all, we implicitly also acknowledge that forgiveness, the reality of that forgiveness to ourselves. Too often in moments of godly conviction, I acknowledge my sin uh, well enough, but I stop short of acknowledging God's forgiveness, which is by faith, we say, just as real. If, on the other hand, at this precise moment, as opposed to any others, you identify more with Simon, remembering past healing and forgiveness with a kind of fading wonder that's easily overpowered by your present doubts and suspicions that Jesus might not actually be who his followers say he is. And if you feel yourself distanced from Jesus' other followers, perhaps even in this church, because so many uh, Christians are hypocritical, known sinners who worship as if they were saints, 
or perhaps they're not just they're just not your sort of people the gullible the overly emotional or maybe you're really only here today because a little piece of you is not quite sure that the great Jesus myth is the fiction that you think it is right now then I think maybe Jesus would do for you and for me what he did for Simon and he would let you continue to judge but direct you to uh, change the direction of that judging and evaluation at yourself the story of Jesus uh, the story Jesus tells Simon reminds him that he too has been forgiven. Even if his forgiveness, if the forgiveness had to cover less than those of others, it was still more than he could pay. And if Jesus forgives our sins, we must also understand that he forgives and engages with other people whose sin is from, from our likely incorrect perspective, much worse than our own. He also reminds us, reminds Simon, that as long as we're willing to let Jesus be a guest in our house or our hearts, common courtesy might demand a less hostile uh, judging or critical approach to him. He may not be exactly what we imagined. We might not be yet ready to kiss his feet, but we could at least offer a handshake. And maybe by extending our hand, we will find the forgiveness that is in need and, uh, and with, is within our reach. Now, I don't know what that handshake means for you or for me, but I pray that God will make it known to both of us. And to all of us, I hope that we can rightly hear God as he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And that we find ourselves like Mary and the other women mentioned at the end of this chapter, or at the next, beginning of the next chapter, accompanying Jesus on his way to the next stop on his journey.